You're about to listen to a new episode of Audio Signals. Get ready to take a journey into the known, the unknown, and everything in between. Recorded at no specific point in time nor space, ITSP Magazine's co-founders Marco Cipelli and Sean Martin follow their passion and curiosity as they venture away from the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society to discover new stories worth being told. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at Nintex.com. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Marco. Sean, welcome back to Audio Signal. I missed you, man. It's, uh, the, the signal is on, man. Are you, are you feeling happy? I am very happy, uh, but not all the time. I think I got some, uh, maybe some, some wire. I need some rewiring. <laughs> need to re-engineer yourself? Uh, I may, yeah. I may need that. Don't we all need that though? I mean, I mean, look at what the, where we live today in this uh, extreme amount of information every day. And, uh, and we just have to go on with our life. And sometimes it's just not easy. It's not easy at all. And well, that's uh, the thing, right? There, there's huge tides of information, of feelings, of emotions, of misinformation. I mean, you can go down the list of tides of everything. And if you don't kind of embrace yourself and understand where you want to go, uh, you're just going to go with the tide regardless. And mm-hmm. uh, I think we have an opportunity perhaps to, to change the change our path in the tide or our, our trajectory uh, regardless of the tide. You know who does that best? Not yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good I'm at not, giving advice. I'm not good at anything. <laughs> <laughs> but I cannot follow my own advice. And fortunately, there are people that they have studied, they've written books about it, they, they've done research. And, uh, and uh, today, it's a, I'm very excited about this conversation because it's a, a, a member of the Mentor Project. That's how we, we met. And uh, the idea of this conversation came during one of his presentation, which was about uh, speaking in public. He, he called it the super charisma, how to be a transformative speaker. And man, you, you were not there, but he really, he really got me excited about even our upcoming talk. I think there is a lot to learn. And, and, and one thing that really struck me was the fact that he, he started this presentation say that we are all public speaking either we realize it or not, in, in our everyday life. I mean, you talk to someone, you're publicly speaking, unless you're talking to yourself, which I know, Sean, you do a lot. So uh, I, I definitely good luck do. with that. Good luck with that. Uh, I'm public speaking to myself. <laughs> in, the, in the mirror, which is a good way to practice, I, I heard. Anyway, I think well, let's, enough. Let's get chatting. excited. Let's get excited. Yep. I mean, Who, I'm going to do 
I'm going to do the presentation. It's uh, it's a pleasure to bring uh, Ali Benazir on the show. Ali, how are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you're doing great. You're the the happiness engineers, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read all well part of the things that you you have done. So, the introduction goes something like this: um, Ali is a happiness engineer, is an author, a trainer, a public speaking coach, and uh, for books including the Tao of Dating, the Smart Woman's Guide to Being Absolutely Irresistible. And it's, uh, it's a bestseller book. He has an AB from Harvard College, MD from UC San Diego School of Medicine, and uh, MPhil, which what does it mean? He's going to have to tell me because I'm Italian, so I don't understand what it's that a, means. It's a, it's a fancy master's degree with like okay. extra cream and sauce. <laughs> and that is from an extra cream and sauce university because it's from Cambridge. So... Uh, this is just the beginning of a very long bio and a lot of accomplishment. Uh, I think we should just dive in and uh, and maybe having you tell us, what are you focusing in these days? Yeah, so this pandemic thing was interesting and yeah. uh, basically brought to the fore the fact that people have a lot of need for community, resilience, mental health, and all that junk just came to the surface. So. Uh, so for a while, I was just generating useful material for people to cope. Um, so as a, I call myself a happiness engineer, because it turns out that the brain is not designed, or I guess evolved, for us to be happy. Our brains are designed for us to survive. So even in an environment uh, like that of March 15, 2022, when our survival really isn't at risk anymore. So if you think about it, you don't have to run away from a mastodon. You don't have marauding neighboring tribes invading your village trying to kill you. And you're not starving because it didn't rain for two weeks. So you can just walk into Whole Foods, grab your food, access to unlimited calories, safe streets, no threats. And you would think that because there are no threats, people would just be chilling out and having a ball. But it turns out that the survival part of your brain does not go to sleep. It's still going to look for ways to do its thing. So people are going to still use that survival aspect of the brain to make themselves miserable. They're going to worry that, oh, neighbor has a nicer car than me. My rank in the tribe just went down. Or, damn it, I must get that corner office to increase my status or whatever it is. Um, or, my butt doesn't look great in these pants. Whatever it is, people are going to find ways to make themselves miserable because that survival brain still has hegemony over everything else. So these days I just think about how we can do things to move ourselves towards happiness and flourishing and thriving. So I use the word happiness and people think, oh, you know, is this going to be prancing through the fields? And it's more about long-term flourishing as a human being. We've been given some gifts, and what are the conditions under which, under which these gifts can flourish and we can give them to the world fully? And this is, it's an extraordinary opportunity because for most of human history, 3 million years of hominid history, 300,000 years of Homo sapiens history, we didn't have that luxury. We had to worry about survival. But now we can think about, hey, 
how can I express myself fully? How can I give my gifts to the world fully? So for that, you need to actually be deliberate about it. That's why I call it happiness engineering, because you have to engineer the conditions. You have to design the conditions under which you can flourish and give your best gift to the world. So that's what I've been thinking about recently and the ways to do it and to get people to transform their behavior. So you were present on a talk where I talked about super charisma, how to be a transformative speaker. And as somebody who's been in the personal development and self-help industry for about 16, 17 years now, um, what I've noticed is that information is not enough. So I've read hundreds of self-help books, gone to dozens of seminars, and I'm pretty sure I am not seven feet tall and a trillionaire, trillionaire yet. So what's up with that? And the idea is that information alone is not enough. Information needs to become knowledge. And then the knowledge, that's the stuff that you retain, needs to turn into behavior. And the behavior, just doing it one time isn't enough, it has to become habit. And once you have the habit, once you do something on a regular basis, that's when you start to transform your life and that of the people around you. I love it, Ali. And uh, the, the thing that comes to mind for me, and I was kind of kind of teasing it a little bit uh, in the intro about kind of getting stuck in the in the flow of of the tide. And I'm wondering how how do we as humans kind of break away from the abstract, be happy to actually know what happiness is right you said exactly through the field right so is it that we have to sit in the tide and go this sucks um that's not the direction i want to go well, let me figure out a different way to go or or do we have a, a how do we get a clear vision of what we want to do so that we can then begin to take action i guess is the question i have that's great great question sean so i've created a framework around this such that you can see what's happening and what you can do about it. And the great news is there's a lot you can do about it. There are ways you can be deliberate about it and you can start small. It's all about starting small and then building on it. So the structure that I've come to uh, like and use, I call it the five pillars of human thriving. So there's five areas in your life. And if you take care of these five areas, chances are very good that you will be a much happier person. However, if you miss any one of these five, your misery is guaranteed. So you best listen up and do something about them. So here we go. Number one is robust positive. relationships. So the body of research that shows that relationships, the prime determinant of our overall health and happiness is huge and definitive. I mean, it's basically slam dunk. This is the thing. So the, the, grant, the Harvard grant study uh, that tracked the members of the class of 1933 and 1935 to the present day. In that court was John F. Kennedy, Norman Mailer, a bunch of luminaries, John Updike. And what it found was that basically happiness equals love. So that's important because in this country, in the United States, where we live, and a lot of other uh, affluent westernized countries, people think that happiness equals success and they place career at the top and their relationships support their careers. The natural order of things should be for your career to support your relationships. And I've noted that places like Italy and Spain, they tend to get that uh, right more often than we do here in the United States. 
so relationships are number one. So robust relationships is number one. Number two is meaningful work. So uh, I read this great book by the late David Graeber called Bullshit Jobs. I loved it because it just articulated this thing that I've been thinking about my entire life, which is that so many smart, talented people that I know have bullshit jobs. They're doing stuff that is utterly meaningless. They're widgets. And I'm like, no, you are a glorious human being, educated, capable, and yet you're the chief widget marketing specialist in the Southeast region. Is that what you dreamt of being when you were a kid? So having meaningful work is huge because you're spending eight to 10 hours a day doing this thing five days a week. And if it sucks, your life is going to suck. That's all there is to it. Uh, so we can go into the individual aspects of what goes into finding meaningful work or crafting meaningful work within the job you have. And then number three is sound sleep. I put it, the middle, put it in the middle because it's the keystone of the entire thing. You have an arch. This is the keystone. You take this out, the whole arch falls apart. Number four is mental fitness. And number five is physical fitness. So would you like me to go through each one of those with my top tip for each one? Sure. I think, uh, I think the audience would love to hear that. Yeah. So number one is robust relationships. And we could talk about just that for the rest of the time we have together. But we're not going to do that because I want to give you my top tip for that. And uh, obviously, you want to prioritize relationships over the other stuff, especially work. What does that look like? It means making time for it. That's your number one most precious commodity. So once you are allotting time to something, that, that means you've made a priority out of it. So instead of leaving your relationships and hanging out with friends to chance, what I ask people to do is to put it on a calendar. We have all these bullshit meetings that we attend attend all day without fail. Um, and we make them because it's on the calendar. So why not put this on the calendar as well? And for those people who are listening who are in a long-term relationship, the number one tip that I uh, propose is to have this thing called novelty night. So novelty night is like date night, but it goes one step beyond. Instead of just having a date with your partner, you're going to do something new with your partner. So what does that mean? That means you pick a new hike and you go on it, or you go and take a painting class together, or you take a cooking class together, or just cook a new dish together, or even just go to a new restaurant together, or walk around a new neighborhood together. Whatever it is, the important thing here is novelty. Because the number one problem that long-term couples tend to have is to take each other for granted. If you have read the book Mating in Captivity by Esther Perel. She goes through all that in great detail. I highly recommend that book if you're in a long-term relationship. And here's a simple idea. Dopamine is a chemical that makes you feel like you're really excited about someone and you're in love. And dopamine is also the novelty chemical. So it's the chemical of anticipation. And so when you do something new, you're making your brain produce dopamine, and at the same time you're hanging out with your partner, you are recontextualizing your relationship and your partner in this novel environment. And so your brain's like, oh, he or she must be brand new. This is great. So it's like hitting a reset button on your relationship every week that you do this. And I gotta tell you, you do this, it is transformative, it changes everything. And also it's just really important to realize that you really don't know your partner well at all. So they've done this study where they had total strangers assess 
someone based on a few data points and they're about 32% right. And they have long-term partners who've had uh, their partner for at least 10 years do the same assessment. They get it about 45% right. So yeah, you don't really know your partner. So uh, recontextualize your partner in a new environment and also just assume that they're new. Assume that you don't know them that well and get back to me on how that goes. So that's uh, that's for robust relationships. Number two, meaningful work. Well, I like to tell the story about the three bricklayers and they've attributed this Christopher Wren. Um, they say he walked on anonymously onto the building site of St. Paul's Cathedral, his, his masterwork. And he's seeing a bricklayer and he says, hey, what are you doing? And he says, what does it look like? I'm doing, I'm laying some bricks, mate. And he's like, oh, okay, fine. So walks on to the next guy. He seems a little, bit, a little more engaged in his work. And he says, what are you doing? He says, oh, I'm, I'm building this church. It's going to be great. It's going to be really awesome. The guy's like, all right, this guy's into it. And the third guy, he's just really engaged. And he's just like got this dreamy look on his face. And he's good sir, what are you doing? And he takes a breath. He looks up at the sky and he says, I'm building a house of worship for people to commune with their higher selves for generations to come. And so the first guy had a job, the second guy had a career, and the third guy had a calling. So in the current job that you have, do you have a job, do you have a career, or do you have a calling? And the great thing is that even if you think you just have a job or a career, you can find aspects of your work to make it more meaningful. So they interviewed this a janitor at a hospital once, and he seemed to be really engaged in his work and really happy and said, hey, dude, you're just a janitor. What's the deal? Why are you saying? He's like, look, I'm not just a janitor. I'm, I'm here to make sure that all these families who come here, they have a safe and enjoyable and, and uh, sound stay at this hospital. I'm here to make sure people stay happy and healthy. And that made his job that much more meaningful. So this is called job crafting. Um, there's a business school professor by the name of Amy Resnievsky. I'm probably botching her name, but it's a long and very constant intensive name. Uh, but yeah, Amy Resnievsky, uh, she talks about this job crafting thing. And within whatever job you have, you can find that aspect of it that is meaningful and find your little mission statement. So that third bricklayer, he's building a house of worship for generations to come to commune with their higher selves. I mean, that's pretty cool, right? instead of just laying bricks. Of course, you can also plan your life such that in a year, you're doing something more meaningful than you are right now and thereby making yourself happier. So always remember that that is also an option. So think long-term, what can you be doing that's more meaningful? And if you're doing something that's purely extractive, uh, that's just not gonna make you happy. The things that render work meaningful, uh, basically it's service. So if you're doing service, we are hyper-social creatures, and anything that we do that is pro-social makes us happy, adds meaning to our lives. So the more of that you're doing, uh, to, um, the better you're going to feel about yourself. Um, so, so Alex, just, three, just one in, just one point. And so it's true what we say that if you if you do what you love, you don't feel like you're working. Yeah, that's that sum it up, right? Yeah, I mean, if it's meaningful to you, then. You're in good shape and you can do that all day long. I hope you're also, whoever is loving their work is also making the living at it. That's important too. Uh, but yes, <laughs> loving your work is definitely a better alternative than going to work, gritting your teeth and saying, I hate my boss. So 
Yeah, we not, hope everybody not doing can find it just for the money either. That's that will be the opposite. Uh, that wouldn't work. Cool. Exactly. Yeah, just wanted to clarify that. Number Classic. three. Number three, sound sleep. So, uh, I grew up uh, in this culture in the society where people said, "I'll sleep when I'm dead," and you know they did. Uh, they did all-nighters, and as a medical student, we were required to do all-nighters. It's overnight call, and doctors do that. And basically, sleep does not get nearly enough respect in society. It's getting better. So the book by Matthew Walker came out a few years ago, Why We Sleep, which is fantastic. I highly recommend everybody read it because everybody sleeps, and everybody's not fully knowledgeable about it. So it's the best book on sleep out there. But what I want to impress upon everyone is that sleep is paramount. It is not optional, and you can't make up for it. So if you've lost two hours of sleep, if you're sleeping six hours instead of eight, four or five days a week, you can't make up for it on Saturday and Sunday because you'd have to sleep until 1 p.m., and nobody does that. So let's get rid of that illusion, and instead let's have really good sleep hygiene. So what you want to do is you want to have, you want to have an alarm, not for when you wake up, but for when you go to bed. You want to have a really strict bedtime. So that's probably the most important aspect of sleep hygiene. And people are also wrecking their sleep by looking at bright screens right before they go to bed. They're watching TV on their iPads or even on their TV. And what this does is it lights up your brain. It thinks it's still daytime. And so your sleep quality diminishes. You have a harder time going to sleep. So make sleep your religion. Make it such that you are absolutely fanatical about getting good sleep, quality of sleep. And uh, the basic tips for good sleep hygiene are no caffeine after 4 p.m because caffeine has a half-life of six hours. So if you have a coffee at four, at 10 p.m., half of it's still circulating in your blood, and you're going to have a rough time falling asleep. No alcohol a couple hours before bedtime. Alcohol, people think it helps them fall asleep, but actually uh, wrecks the quality of your sleep. You don't get the, the proper slow-wave deep sleep, and it disrupts REM sleep as well. And uh, you want your room to be colder than usual, so colder is better. And you want, you want to only use your bed for a sleeping insect. So don't use it for work because then your brain will think that, oh, I'm at the office now. Whereas, no, you're not at the office. You're in bed. You should be falling asleep. Uh, and make the room completely dark. So I've found that finding these blackout curtains is really hard. So the alternative to that is to get an eye mask. Eye mask is revolutionarily good. And earplugs. Stick them in your ear. Block out the sound, block out the the, the, uh, the light, and you'll get much better quality sleep. And the number one piece of advice I give to people about sleep is to go get a sleep study. So 24% of men and 9% of all women have sleep apnea. It's the number one underdiagnosed disorder in the country, chronic disease. And I had it in, uh, for about three, four decades. I was nearly... Um, killing myself on the freeway because I was falling asleep in broad daylight. And so finally I went and got a test. I was waking up 257 times a night because I was I had sleep apnea and I was not able to breathe. So I was having these <gasps> breakthrough breaths that sounds like snoring. And therefore I was interrupting my own sleep 257 times a night. So I went and I got a machine. It's called a CPAP machine, continuous positive airway pressure. And you put that on and your airway stays open. You have a full night of sleep. And I got to tell you, it's like night and day. I do not fall asleep behind the wheel of the car anymore. Uh, and uh, and yeah, 
if you or a partner of yours snores at night or has daytime drowsiness, they probably have sleep apnea. They should go have it checked out. Does that ring a bell at all? I think it does. I think so. <laughs> I've heard it, uh, friends and family, both. And I'm wondering, you uh, quickly, Ali, you, you mentioned earplugs for quiet. Any, any thoughts on calming music or certain types of sounds to fall asleep? Yeah, if it helps you fall asleep, all that stuff is fine. It works. So whatever works for you to calm you down and and get into that mode, uh, feel free to use it. So teach teach for their own. The, the dead Kennedys. <laughs> sure, man. Some people like the clash. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, Metallica is good too. I love it. <laughs> whatever works. Um, but those other tips that I gave, those are universal. So light is going to disrupt your sleep. Uh, watching things that emit blue light, that's definitely going to disrupt your sleep. That's probably the biggest thing. People are watching Netflix right before they go to bed. And and for a while, I was doing that during the pandemic because I just you'd be watching stuff. And, and I found that, oh, it's taking me an extra half hour to fall asleep. What's going on? Oh, I am not taking my own advice. That's what was happening. So if anything, you, know, you can you know, get those cultural blue light point. A cultural point about that that you mentioned about you know Spain and Italy giving a little bit more maybe relevance to relationship over work and all that kind of stuff. And I, when I moved from Italy to the United States, I couldn't sleep at night because I just couldn't create the black carton. Like in, in, in Italy, you just, you just roll down the, 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 the window in the front and, and it's pitch dark. And then I come here, I'm like, I just light all the time. So now I feel the opposite when I'm going to eat and I'm like, it's too dark in here, but I guess mm. it's because I'm a, uh, um, I used to the wrong thing, I guess. Yeah, in Europe they do have pretty good uh, window blocking, mm -hmm. uh, and so that's why I recommend getting the eye mask because it basically it's your own blackout curtain. It's portable; you can take it wherever you want to, hmm. and it makes all the difference. Got it. All right, so shall we roll on to number four? Number four is Please. mental fitness. Yes. So mental fitness was going to be the entire basis of the happiness engineering program, but I realized actually we're dealing with the whole person. And mental fitness is pretty simple. So gentlemen, if I ask you, hey, you want to be physically fit, what should you do? You would say? Work out. Food and exercise. Exactly. You work out. You exercise. Pretty simple. Everybody knows that. Now, if I say, hey, you want to be mentally fit, what do I do for that? Work out your brain. Work out. Exactly. And what's the mental equivalent of a physical workout? It's meditation. So meditation is the thing that will make your mind fit. And what do we mean by fit? We mean that when stuff happens, you can handle it. The point of fitness is there's a bus there. You want to catch it. You can run there and catch it and not collapse. Yeah, there's a flight of stairs you have to go up. You can do that and not be winded at the end of it. So the point of mental fitness is... If there's a crisis or bad shit happens, you can handle it, right? You get bad news, your company's in trouble, um, whatever's happening, you have the resilience to deal with it and be effective. And for that, we have meditation. Meditation is great. It is the single most transformative practice in my life because it's kind of like you got this world, and the world is full of sharp objects and pebbles and shards of glass and thorns. 
you're thinking, damn it, I want to be able to walk barefoot in this world. And this is really hard. What do I do? Oh, I know. I'm going to cover the world in leather. That way I can walk barefoot. Or you could wear shoes. So meditating is like wearing shoes. And there can be thorns. There can be shards of glass. You're going to be fine. Meditation gives you that buffer zone between you and the weird stuff that's happening in the world. And you can just kind of look at it and say, oh, there's stuff happening. Stuff's always been happening. And that's fine. But not only that, it allows you to look at the stuff that's happening inside your own head and realize, oh, that's a bunch of electrical impulses going back and forth. I am not my emotions. I am not my thoughts. I am the one who is observing those emotions. It's like the difference between a TV screen and the programming on it. So you have a TV screen and it's showing, I don't know, some show like Schitt's Creek or um, Ted Lasso. And whatever's happening there is happening there. And then you turn it off and it's not there anymore. It didn't stick on there. And you can change it to a different channel. And the TV is still the TV. It's intact. That is your consciousness. That is your your consciousness is the TV. You are the TV. You are not the programming on the TV. So what happens when you meditate in the long term is you start to identify more and more as the TV screen and not the programming that's happening on it. You start to identify yourself as the witness to your own thoughts as opposed to your thoughts and feelings. And that is a game changer because that's how people make themselves miserable. They think, oh, I am sad. Well, actually, no, you are a consciousness experiencing some sadness. And changing the language makes a big difference, too. So instead of saying, I am sad, I am unhappy, I am feeling, I am miserable, you can say, hey, I am experiencing this. If you name it, it actually changes the way your brain processes things. Uh, and uh, it's much better than identifying with emotion and being the emotion. So that's mental fitness. And if people do not have a meditation practice, I highly encourage them to pick up something like the Calm app or Sam Harris's app. It's called Waking Up. And there's a bunch of apps out there. But really, all you have to do is take a deep breath, close your eyes, and just take a few slow breaths. And I like this meditation called the Humsa meditation, where you do three things at the same time. You are looking up with your eyes closed. You're paying attention to the feeling of breath coming in through your nose. So you make your whole world that sensation of air coming through your nostrils. And as you're inhaling, you say hum silently. As you exhale, you say saw silently. And if you successfully do those three things, looking up, feeling the air coming through your nostrils, and saying silently hum as you inhale and saw as you exhale, you can't have any thoughts. I double dare you to have any thoughts while you're doing those three. Because if you're having thoughts, that means you're not doing three. Come back to center, do those three things. And that's it. That's meditation right there. People think it's some super fancy, complicated thing. And it is not. It is the simplest thing you can do. It's literally sitting there doing nothing. But that's the nothing you're doing. Those are the three nothings you're doing. If you do that, man, does it make a difference. Start with two minutes a day and build from there. I say we challenge everybody to pause and do that, Marco. Oh, I was I was doing it while I, I was saying it, and yeah, I mean, we can do a one minute meditation. I can, I'll be happy to lead it. We can. We should do maybe an episode about that one time. Sure. Right now, I want. I'm curious to know what the number what five the tip for the number five. Number five. Number five is huge. Number five is physical fitness. So we already 
talked about that a little bit. If you want to be physically fit, what do you do? You exercise. And I cannot overemphasize the importance of exercise. Exercise is the number one thing that will change your mood most effectively and speedily. I mean, it's insane. All you have to do is start moving and your mood will elevate and it will stay elevated and it pretty much works every time. So it works so well that pharmaceutical companies are trying to develop an exercise pill. But guess what? You already have the exercise pill. It's called your body. You just have to move, do stuff. So whatever it is, in however form, just wait, do wait, it. Wait. If it means walking, an walking is great exercise. Pill? Can, you, can hmm? you elaborate? Can you elaborate? Yeah, on so the they, they, I'm not making this up. It's so nonsense in my head. They've been doing research to figure out what the chemical basis of exercises what is it that's physiologically happening as you exercise so they can capture that in a pill so people can just have the pill but i'm like wait a sec we already have the pill you just have to exercise (laughs) that that's the top of laziness like (laughs) that's just that's twisted (laughs) and wrong if you ask me wow okay sorry Um, that blew my mind yeah one one of these days you're gonna see somebody's super rip it's like hey wait is that real or is that just the pill uh so (laughs) So I recommend the people exercise. Exercise (laughs) is great. Exercise done in groups can bond to other people. So there's a great uh, book about that. And what's it called? I forget what it's called, but it's by Jane McGonigal. Um, Sorry, it's by Kelly McGonigal. There's two sisters, two twin sisters. They both write books. Kelly McGonigal is the psychologist. It's great. Uh, So moving. It makes all the difference in the world. And the exercise form that I recommend to people is the one that you will end up doing. So whatever you can do, just do that and do it regularly. If you can do it every day, that is best. Recommended dosage is 210 minutes per week. But if you can do 150 minutes per week is minimum. But if you do more, do more. My favorite is high-intensity interval training. And there's a lot of research showing that that is just awesome for all the systems in your brain. And, and exercise is also the only thing that's been proven to make you smarter. There's all these pills, all these nootropics, all these things that people think is going to make a difference. But the only thing that's been clinically proven to make you smarter is exercise, aerobic exercise. So, yes, incorporate into your life. If you can do resistance training, that's great for a whole bunch of different reasons. Aerobics, any kind of aerobic exercise, that's the one that has the best effect on elevating mood. So incorporate these all into your life. So that's those are the five pillars of human thriving. So hopefully you can pick up one of those practices and do something new in your life with it. Well, talk to me about that, Ali. Um, is it just pick one to get started? Because uh, you mentioned a few times, time slots, I would say, uh, for each one. Not all of them, I don't think. How much, how much time you should allocate for each activity. Yeah. I'm just wondering, how, how, how do you look at your day? Because you talked about setting a time to go to sleep, right? And then, and then yeah. setting some time to prepare for the sleep, and and then hopefully you sleep the time, the duration that you want. You set some time outside for mental workout, physical workout, um, and the other things. How do you organize that? And mm, you start with question. one so, and, and and master that, and then add more, or what do you do? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I'm a big fan of starting small and then building on it, and also habit stacking. So for meditation, 
the best way to get a meditative practice started is to stack it on top of some pre-existing habit. So I'm hoping that the listeners here brush their teeth maybe even twice a day, right? And if they do it in the morning, then guess what? That's something you do every day. That's a pre-existing habit. It's pretty well established. So what you can do is you can attach the new habit to that. So you say, right after I brush my teeth, when I come out of the bathroom, I'm going to meditate. So that's when I meditate. I meditate first thing in the morning after I get out of the bathroom and that way it gets done. And the funny thing is if I don't do it then, even if I have the rest of the day free to myself, I end up forgetting to meditate. So having that habit is super important. So set a time for that, stick it to another habit. And the other habit could be lunch. It could be maybe you have an evening workout. Maybe it's right before you go to bed. Everybody sleeps at night. So maybe right before you go to, go to bed, you meditate. I do not recommend doing it right before you go to bed because people tend to get drowsy and fall asleep and that's not meditation. Whereas if you do it in the morning, you're setting up your entire day for success. If you meditate in the morning, boom, you've made yourself mentally ready for whatever happens. So you want to also start small. So you have it stack and you start small. So you start with two minutes a day. Anybody can sit down for two minutes a day. This is not a problem. Uh, even those who think they're fidgety and their mind's going nuts, great, two minutes, you can handle it. And then you build. Next week, you do three minutes. Next week, you do four minutes or just add a minute a day, whatever it is. From going from two to three minutes, not a dramatic shift. But guess what? By the end of the month, you're up to 20 minutes. And 20 minutes is kind of the minimum effective dose for meditative practice. I do 30 minutes in the morning, but 20 minutes was what I did for about 10 years. And that's good. That's great. That's amazing. That changes everything everything. That's a game changer. And then the other stuff, you just want to stick it on the calendar. Uh, and you say, hey, I'm not going to do this today. But you say, okay, I'm going to work on my sleep hygiene next Friday. So you stick it on the calendar and then it gets done. I want to do um, I want to do a novelty night with my wife. Stick it on the calendar. Make a list. So when I do my workshops, I have people make a list of 25 novel activities and then they just drop it in the calendar. So it's just sitting there and you designate a night. You say, hey, Wednesday night, that's our novelty night. That's when we're going to do the thing. And that way it gets done. So the whole thing is to offload this stuff to either your unconscious mind, like pre-existing habits, stuff you're already doing, or offload it to some physical system that you don't have to think about. So calendar pops up, you do it, done, easy. So I, I have a question as, I you know, yeah, well, many I know they can stay here <laughs> forever. But so we we met on the on the mentor project, and and there is people there with a lot of experience. We talk about lateral mentorship, which is what you just did, you know, last time that you did the presentation, and and you know, mentorship, education, and you know, there are different interpretation of that. But as you're presenting all this thing, my my biggest question is. Why don't we teach these to kids in school? I mean, the way you put it here is this is the basic for living and healthy, successful, healthy. Let's keep saying that. I mean, I think you, you, you live happy. You live a successful life. It's not counted by the money that you have in the bank that we made it clear to start. So why is this not a topic that... Parents teach to their kids, the school put in their curriculum. It just blew my mind how humanity get things priority a little bit mixed up. You're absolutely right, Marco. And this is the whole point of why I'm doing this. This is 
this is my missing education. So I've sat through, I don't know how many years of education. So 12 years of, you know, grade school and then four years of college, four years of medical school, master's degree, countless hours spent in seminars and the stuff that I really needed to learn, nobody bothered to teach me. What do we need to learn? We need to relate to other human beings. We need to ask for what we want successfully. We need to be able to express ourselves. We need to be able to res regulate our mental functioning. We need to know when we are doing something that's moving us towards greater flourishing and happiness and when we're making ourselves miserable. So these are all simple life skills that somehow got forgotten. So that's why I'm so adamant about teaching public speaking and dating and relationship skills and all these things that are actually the core of our existence as humans. Um, and I remember taking a class uh, at Harvard. It was called, uh, it was about Japan. It was a history of Japan. It was a great class. I enjoyed it very much. And the only thing I remember from that class is 1868 Meiji Restoration which basically sounds like a name of a restaurant in Los Angeles. I don't even know what that is. Uh, but the stuff that really mattered, nobody taught us. And if you were taught those things, you would have retained it because you're using it every day. Right, right. Do you think, do you think that things are getting better with... No. with... <laughs> There you go. With technology, with the internet, with social media, and, and maybe the people become a little bit more aware? Or do you feel like it brings even too much pressure to comparing yourself to others and, and creating all sort of mental distortion of, of yourself? So better in terms of happiness? Yeah, that we become a little bit more conscious about these mm. things that maybe we're missing and because i don't know maybe without without this knowledge that can come from you surfing the internet or going to social media or website that tells you hey they learn how to meditate an app uh, that, yeah. can, that can remind you you know your watch to tell you hey it's time to stand up because you've been right. sitting on your ass for too long so do you see that to we're going in the right direction maybe as a society or we're making that's it a, even a bigger that's, problem. That's a great insight, Marco. And and your your smartwatch, your Apple Watch, just completely embodies all of these countervailing forces at the same time. So, on the one hand, we have unprecedented access to all these information, all these tools. I, mean, I can roll off the names of five different meditation apps right now. You got Insight Timer, you got Calm, um, you got Waking Up got a bunch of these things and there they are they're in your pocket they're on your wrist there it is it's never been easier to do and yet the vehicle that's carrying this is the most distracting device known to humanity it's insane right you got this phone thing and and i'm convinced that the next phase of human evolution has to do with people just getting run over in crosswalks because they're, they're all looking at their phones of looking up at the cars coming at them uh so it's it's interesting for sure you have these two forces that are countervailing one is the availability of all this information for our happiness and health but at the same time you got this attention economy that is trying to deprive us of that very faculty that allows us to be happy which is to control our attention 
to where we want it to go. So this means that we have to be even more vigilant than before. So the reason why I don't mind people starting with an app like Calm or Waking Up uh, is that, look, they're already using these gizmos anyway. So that's an easy portal to get introduced to the practice. And from there, once they start doing it, they'll realize, oh, this is, this is like training wheels on a bike. I don't really need the app anymore. They can go off and do it on their own. Uh, that said, meditation is the ultimate deviceless practice. You don't need any toys or just don't even a cushion, just sit on the ground and you do it. So, so yeah, it's become a lot more difficult. We live in the age of distractions. So we just have to be much more deliberate about how we use these tools. Otherwise these tools will consume us. And, uh, the trends, the trends I've noticed are not great. And, and definitely social media is a net negative in terms of mental health, especially apps like Instagram, which really promote a lot of comparison uh, and it makes people very self-conscious and, and status aware. And that's just not the path to happiness. The path to happiness is to take control of your attention and do the five practices and hate other people they've got their own issues let them be but there's it's no it makes no sense to compare your insides to other people's outsides dozens of times a day and to put yourself on display for judgment that's just the formula for misery so it's tough being a teenager these days i have a niece who's who's a teenager and i'm just thinking wow how how are they ever going to deal with this stuff so uh yes interesting times for sure great point well let, let's tell me ali how how do we know if what we're doing is working? What are the signals? Great question. That's fantastic. So one of the issues here is that there is no control experiment for life. You just get one of them. But you can compare your current self to your former self. The only way you can do that effectively, though, is to have a record of your former self. And you do that by some form of journaling some way of recording and chronicling who you are right now, such that when you have progressed later on, you can tell, oh, wow, things are a little bit better now. So meditation definitely works. And the effects are dramatic, and they can start kicking in within even just weeks. Like two weeks, you start, start meditating. After two weeks, people just might notice. So you can ask other people, but most important, you want to ask yourself, you want to have some kind of self-assessment protocol and say, hey, look, the reason why I'm doing this practice, whatever it is, is to become a better version of myself. Whether that means I can fit into these old pants again, whether it means that I am, I'm getting less angry at people, I'm having less road rage, whatever it is, decide what that metric is and measure it. So people are good at that when it comes to exercise. Maybe they weigh themselves on a scale or they measure themselves. So the key is to just have some kind of measure like that for yourself. So for sleep, that would be having some kind of sleep tracking device or going to get a sleep study and noticing that the quality of your sleep is getting better or you feel better in the morning. So the difference between me before my CPAP machine and after my sleep machine, night and day, and now I notice that I am not falling asleep behind the wheel. So major plus. Uh, at work, I don't know. Do you come back from work <clears throat> happier than you were before, or are you still miserable? 
So that may be a good measure for that. Are you more productive at work because now you feel like you have more meaning there? Uh, or are you less productive? So find your own metric for these things and then decide to track it just casually, once a week even. And that way you have some base of comparison. And there's nothing more compelling to the human brain than tracking your own progress. When you see you've moved forward, I mean, we're just builders by nature. So when you see yourself building yourself towards a better future, man, that feels good. And it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. So many tips here. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good way to look inside yourself and maybe start realizing what you're doing. We're going to touch upon a little wrong? bit upon public speaking, though, because that was that was the whole pretext for this thing. And yeah, I but you know get what? A little bit of public speaking. I, I've got I've to say that I, all the things we've talked about here are, are really, really important and relevant. I'm sure the audience has been enjoying that. And, of course, we're going to share resources that anything that you mentioned, if you want to share with us, we'll put it in the in the podcast notes. And. I don't know. Maybe we'll we'll have you back if you if you have the I'd time. I'd like to not cut that short and let's do a proper. Yeah, sure. We'll yeah, do public speaking. Yeah, because that, that that was very fascinating as well. But I think that, I think that's about the way that you present yourself to the others, which can include a lot of things, not just the way you speak, but the way you act, the way you 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 dress, the way you present yourself. But honestly, as they say, you know, if you feel good about yourself, then you're probably going to have a better projection of yourself to the others. So I would rather have done what we've done today, really getting into this main point. And, and I'm sure each single one, you can probably go for hours and hours just to just to explain. Yeah, when, you, when you feel good, you look good. No question yeah. about that, Marco. That is that's the essence of it. <laughs> yep, Absolutely. Well, Ali, I want to thank you so much for your time. And uh, these are incredible tips that, again, even even if you start with a little bit, it's uh, it's going to be good. I am for sure going to apply some of this. And uh, I'm going to ask my uh, my Apple Watch to, to track all this stuff for me, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, well, you know, you I, I think that, as we always say, technology comes with good thing and bad thing and it's up to us to to turn it into into the positive but sean i have learned a lot i hope you did so as well i, I feel happier having this information and i'm, I'm being all right yep. yeah and, absolutely uh, hallelujah yeah, to that uh, i think that that's <laughs> the objective with uh with itsp magazine right to get people yeah. to think and all and, and all uh, i ask from you guys and also the audience is to teach one thing that you learned today to somebody else. So just go and recount it to somebody else. Say, hey, I heard this podcast, all this stuff about happiness, this, that, the other. This one really grabbed my attention. Here's what it's about. Because that's that's how you retain the information. And also then you realize, oh, I'm not just a consumer. I am also a teacher. I'm the person who uh, who is this kind of person. A mentor. Exactly. <laughs> Well, shout out to the uh, to the mentor mentor project as well. Um, they help facilitate a lot of these conversations. And, and while I didn't get to meet you on on the, that initial presentation, Ali, it's a pleasure meeting you today, and, and appreciate all that you brought to bear. Uh, like Marco said, I think there's a lot a lot to soak in and done in a way where you can you can embrace a particular part that you think you're ready to tackle. So uh, super cool. Yep. 
And please share with us all the way that people can get in touch with you. We'll put it in the notes. I, I think there is a lot to learn. And again, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you on the Mentor Project again soon, I hope. Thank you. Hope the audience found this useful. I'm sure about that. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at Nintex.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Audio Signals. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society, and some even beyond that.